Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this session, so stick around and we'll jump right on in. Before we get started this week, I'm proud to announce that Permaculture Magazine of North America has become the first sponsor of this podcast. Incidentally, they've also just celebrated their one-year anniversary this summer. And as the offshoot of the beloved Permaculture Magazine International out of the UK, there is now a regional edition to help strengthen permaculture knowledge throughout North America. This is one of my favorite go-to resources for the latest information on innovation and news in the permaculture world. If you visit permaculturemag.org to sign up for your hard copy subscription today, you'll get the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture Magazine International as a free bonus. And just for listeners of The Abundant Edge, you can now receive 50% off your digital copy subscription right now by finding the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So go now to permaculturemag.org and dive deep into the local and global solutions that go beyond sustainability. My guest today is Gabriel Franklin, master plasterer and the owner of the company The Art of Plaster. Gabriel grew up with a father who was a designer and builder who shared much of his trade with him from a young age. From the age of 13, Gabriel started on his dad's bucket and cleanup crew and has been working in plastering and finish work ever since. As an artist and nature enthusiast, He has traveled all over the American Northeast and even as far as Australia with his trade and dedication to giving blank walls a voice with clay, lime, and gypsum plasters, saying he is inspired by artistic design and how natural materials can accentuate one's personal experience within a living space. In this interview, Gabriel explains the difference in performance and characteristics of clay, lime, and gypsum. He goes into detail about the importance of prep work and the variety of additives he uses to get specific finish effects and add strength to his mixes. We even talk about some tricks of the trade and much more. For those of you who don't already know, earthen plasters and finishes are just about my favorite thing about natural building, and so I was super excited to nerd out with Gabriel about his craft. So sorry in advance if I get a little giddy at times and end up coming off as a weirdo. Uh, I tried my best to play it down and stay calm, but hey, it's what it is. (laughs) I promise I'll be more composed in other episodes. So here's Gabriel. Hey, Gabriel, thank you so much for taking the time today. How are you? I'm doing great, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure, and I've got a ton of questions that I'd love to ask you. So what do you say we just jump right in? Go for it. All right, so... Let's start out, uh, let's have you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background, or what is it that's got you interested in an art form that many people don't know very much about and frankly oftentimes overlook? Well, you know, growing up, my, uh, my father was a design builder, and um, you know, I, I, was able, I was around a lot, of, uh, a lot of interesting building styles as a young kid. Um, he had a real, a real eclectic style of um, construction and design, and you know, he started tamp- he started playing around with um, plaster finishes when I was just a, a young kid. I was I was the the bucket cleanup crew for a good for a good while, and um, you know, things just sort of evolved from there. What kind of uh, construction methods did you really get your hands on early on? So I'd say in my my late teens. Um, we were doing a lot of, you know, new construction, but we were using a lot of reclaimed materials. Um, at the time, my dad was um, he was buying old barns that had been taken down. We um, we purchased uh, an old mill. Um, he had been importing um, reclaimed materials from old plantations in New Orleans and and down south and. Um, sort of incorporating all of these reclaimed materials into some newer buildings that he was he was building at the time. So I was around that aspect of the the construction all the time. And then, you know, the plastering was kind of the way that he sort of brought all those elements together. So I, you know, I, I've seen um, an array of like this sort of reclaimed, you know, reclaimed style of build with like a new age sort of twist to it throughout my my youth. 
That's remarkable. It sounds like he was a bit ahead of his time before the whole green movement and stuff took over. He's he's heard that, and I've heard that about him more times over. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So what kinds of plasters and finishes did you mostly work with while growing up? So growing up, I really just worked a lot with um, gypsum plasters. Um, you know, and exterior, we did cement stuccos. You know, I, I wasn't really – I was kind of – practicing sort of with the materials that my father and the, those that we worked with were, were knowledge, you know, had, had knowledge of, um, and what was readily available to us. And so at the time it was primarily, and, and still to this day, I still do a lot of, um, of gypsum related plasters, but more so the last, the last 10 years, I've really, really been getting into lime and clay as well. I, I have not really been working much at all with cement. Well, that's good. Can you explain to our listeners, before we get too deep into any of those, a little about the differences between clay, lime, and gypsum plasters? Well, gypsum um, is a milled, a milled material, and um, the, the gypsum plasters that, that we've been using were all sort of pre-milled, bagged materials that you know, you, you'd add water to and, um, and then do your coating process interior. Um, Lime, lime has been a real eye opener for me over the last several years, um, because of its life cycle and its and its ability to be recycled. It's um, and it's just it's aspects of a material that really seem to work, um, work in a building environment. And uh, and what about clay? And and clay, so clay. Just being um, being the most readily available, recyclable plaster <laughs> material known to existence. <laughs> sure. Since and, and what's so interesting too about it, Oliver, is um, I feel like I've you know in a lot of ways as um, as a tradesman, I've kind of learned about these things backwards. You know, I feel like I feel like all of us should have been more educated in really what clay can be used for um, in our building practices. But really, there's, you know, until, until a lot more of the natural, you know, the natural building boom that's been happening, um, the education on clay and lime, for that matter, has, you know, has really not been easily accessible to those in the, um, in the building community. Yeah, that's interesting because my path has been almost exactly the opposite. I worked a lot in industrial construction for quite a few years, but when I started to take it seriously, I made the jump right to an apprenticeship in natural building. And so while I had done some gypsum plastering, mostly with uh, drywall and such, when I actually started to learn about it, I started with clay and then lime. And now I hardly ever use gypsum plasters, especially in applications uh, for natural buildings. And I would imagine most people are, are most familiar with gypsum plasters in interiors and, and with modern drywall. Lime has been one of the most historic plasters along with clay. Um, and, and people are probably most familiar with that in, say, half-timbered homes in Europe and lime renders on, on historical buildings because it, it isn't often used um, conventionally anymore as an exterior finish. It's usually replaced by cement. Um but I mean, clay buildings, especially from the applications that I've seen in Africa, in the Middle East, uh, and also here in Central and South America, are quite, um, I guess, common, especially mm. in, in small villages like where I live now, where a large portion of the homes and even a few municipal buildings are entirely made of adobe. But you also do see a lot of lime renders on the exteriors of these as well. That's that's really great. You know, it's in in the in the area that I'm in. You know, there's a lot of um, old historic buildings and a lot of, say, the um, the old stone homes. You know, at the time that those homes were built, they were using materials that were rarely available. There was creek sands, you know, river sands. The Delaware River runs through our valley, and there were lots of um, lime kilns in the area where they were, um, you know, they're making their lime. So when, you know, they had stacked the stone, the mortar was all very soft and there was, you know, more lime render on the exterior of these old homes. And, um, a lot of, a lot of, um, repairs 
over the years, the last hundred years, have been made with concrete. And we've been seeing the damages that that's actually been having on these old historic structures. So with that, you know, there's been a, a real revitalization in, in the education of Lyme that um, I've been really excited about. Yeah, I've watched that a lot too, especially from my work in the southwest of the United States, around uh, especially New Mexico. A lot of mm -hmm. those buildings had been traditionally plastered with, uh, with clay. And mm -hmm. usually it was around like the 50s and 60s when people came in and tried to cement stucco the exteriors. 10 or 20 years later down the line, they figured out that it was actually eroding out the wall structure on the inside due to water getting in through cracks. And major, major renovations have had to be done on these historic um, missions and churches in order to replace them and, and reinvigorate the tradition of putting on those clay pastors in order to preserve the integrity of these historic buildings. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying, depending on where you are, historic buildings were done differently and finished differently based on the materials at hand. Like you said, you've got a lot of sand in the river basin where you are and lime kilns were common back then. And the dissimilar um, properties of having cement, which is extremely rigid and lime being quite a bit more malleable, has served to degrade these historic buildings. And people are kind of just catching up that, you know, one doesn't replace the other. Absolutely. So let's switch gears a little bit here. Um, I want to talk about the different properties and performances of each of these types of plasters, especially in the case of natural buildings. What types of plasters do you recommend for durability and weather protection in an outdoor application? Well, in all, all honesty, I think, you know, to answer that question, it really depends on where you are. Um, and with that, too, the really the design of the building that you're looking to protect. Um, as I've been learning through, you know, the couple of straw bale houses that I've been uh, been a part of the last couple of years here, um, you know, I think a lot of there's been a lot of talk about using lime renders um, on newer construction, kind of where I'm at on the, you know, in the East Coast of the United States here. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of it has to has to do with how the building's designed, like do you have the roof line kind of shedding the water away from the, the building so that, you know, the, it's not, it's not getting re repeatedly damaged by heavy weather, wet weather. We have a lot of varying types of weather conditions that we see here in, in Pennsylvania. Um, hot, you know, very hot in the summer, very cold in the winter and, and really rainy come spring and fall. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so for our area, I wouldn't, I mean, and I'm, as I've said in my, um, my education through plaster renders, you know, I've been learning more and more about lime and clay. And what I'm seeing now is in time, I definitely am going to try a couple projects on my own property where I do some clay render on the exterior of some outbuildings. But um, it's not, I'd say in around in, in our area, clay might not be exactly what I would recommend as an exterior finish to a home. But um, but lime is certainly um, is certainly a wise choice. And tell me about some of the differences in performance as an outdoor render between lime and clay. So the lime, with its its more open structure, you know, you're talking about how cement is very rigid, mm -hmm. and lime is more open. It's more flexible. It has more of a flexibility and a breathability to it. So whereas you know, with say a cement render. You know the the water if it if it finds a way through a crack or something through the cement mortar itself it's so much more difficult for the the uh, moisture to actually become expelled from the surface of the render whereas the lime just has such a beautiful property where it it literally is able to have this relationship with moisture where it may absorb it but then be expelling it so much more, so much more readily. Um, you know, that answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and what are some of the reasons why the clay would break down in the climate that you just described and maybe wouldn't be ideal for exterior applications there? So due to the, um, you know, due to the driving winds and such, the clay is going to absorb the moisture um, and expel the moisture as well as it dries. But um, 
it would certainly see um, it'd be more susceptible to erosion. Um, but I feel like in some cases that could be a, a sought after finish as well, <laughs> depending yeah. on the structure that you're looking to to render. For sure. I mean, in my experience, what I've found mostly is that different additives and um, even different types of fiber can definitely change the way that clay either weathers or sometimes even expels moisture. Like if you have a lot of fiber in there, oftentimes the final finish will wear down to the point where the fibers are exposed. And then the fiber almost works like a, like a layer of um, thatch and will kick off moisture, almost like having sort of a hairy or a thatched exterior. And That's really great. <laughs> it's interesting. It, it's really, especially with clay, there's a ton of room for experimentation, at least in my experience. I'm seeing that fully. You know, every day that we're, um, you know, the current project I'm on in Maryland right now, you know, it's been, um, it's all straw bale construction and we've been doing all the sit the um, site clay subsoil for all of our our building coats. So for our first first clay coat interior, and then our following um, clay coats for all our sculpting coats, and um, the clay and and um, sand and straw mixtures that we're making up. But it's been really it's been really really empowering to just see that we're just taking the clay subsoil from the property, and you know we're basically adjusting the um, consistency and the sand and straw to do different things. You know, it's like the same three items that we're mixing together and depending on the consistency or how much straw, it's like what you can actually do with that has been really empowering in a lot of ways. It's like, it's like you don't need, you don't need much really. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that segues perfectly into my next question. Because I imagine now, at least at this point in your career, you probably make and mix quite a few of your own plasters that you use. So how do you go about testing and selecting the materials that you have available for the, require, or the requirements of the finished look? So um, basically when we're digging into the clay site soil on the property, um, you know, there's a series of tests that you can do pretty much right there on hand just by, um, you know, taking up some of the clay subsoil, um, adding some water to it, and just seeing how it acts, you know, how sticky it is, how gritty it is. Um, there's also the shake test where you're able to, you know, put a portion of the clay subsoil into a glass jar and you fill it with water and um, tighten up the lid and shake it very tight. And then you can actually see the, um, you know, the, the sands separate from the clay and you can actually calculate a percentage of clay to sand that might be in your subsoil. So with that, you can sort of put together like, you know, a, a starting point for where your mix may need to get adjusted, whether it would need more clay from a different area, a different source, or if you need to be adding more sand to it in order to get the right consistency for plaster. But um, really what I've, what I've found um, even after reading all about it and talking with people all about it, you know, it, it really came down to actually just doing it a lot and constantly feeling it. And ultimately, you know, the recipes, they always, they're always getting tweaked <laughs> one way or the other, Oh yeah, but it's all the time. It's so much about a feel, um, you know, when you really start to understand how the material is working. Absolutely. That's where the art really comes in, I've found. For sure. It's artful there, but it's also, you know, it's also um, very basic. And it's it's like, a, it's almost, it can be feel like very challenging as a basic information. And I feel like, you know, for those that might not know a lot about it or understand it completely, I think really it's just about experimenting with it, you know, just picking up some of that, that dirt <laughs> and mm -hmm. seeing what you with it and seeing how it reacts because it you know um that's been really fun for me while you know i've been i've been doing all these you know man milled plasters for years and kind of like just getting back down to the roots really just down to the dirt to the earth itself and really literally. just literally like seeing how to make the earth malleable to build with it and that's been it's been really a, an empowering experience 
Yeah, absolutely. I found the same. Now let's talk a little bit about interiors since we covered exteriors. Comparing clay, lime, and gypsum, which ones have certain desired properties and performance for different interior finishes? And let's say, you know, high moisture environments like say a kitchen or a bathroom, which would you choose for that? And in other applications based on your experience? I've used all three in in every environment interior. So I've used, you know, um, clay, lime, and gypsum in kitchen, bathroom, living room, you know, all, all living space environments. So I've, I've had the benefit to kind of see um, the difference of how they act. And um, really, again, with clay, what I'm, I'm really falling in love with is the aspects of how it can help regulate the humidity within a space. So as far as a bathroom's concerned, um, you know, I just feel like the way that clay will actually, you know, the way that it absorbs moisture in a space, it kind of works, it works with the moisture that's happening within a space. And, you know, that that's something that, I mean, over the last couple of years that I've been, I've been working more with clay plasters, it's really been exciting to see that that as an aspect of a clay of a render of an interior render whereas you know gypsum um they go up they set very fast they're very hard they're very durable um and you can achieve you know a variety of very high polished to very textured finishes um decorative finishes you know you, you can carry on continuation of um waxes and glazes and such to get some really interesting interesting looks but it doesn't have the same permeability that you would get from clay or a lime render where you know the lime and the clay they're both of those materials have a more breathability um, a breathable aspect which is very much appealing yeah for sure now let's actually take a couple of steps back because this you know having prepped and plastered and finished quite a number of walls Oftentimes what people forget is the the preparation work, making sure that the walls that you're putting your finish on is prepped correctly to take whatever the finish will be. Can you tell me a little bit about the different requirements that you usually find between plastering, say, straw bale walls, cob walls, and maybe even conventional lath and uh, even drywall? So it, that can't even that can't be stressed any any more strongly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, if I have any like whenever anyone is ever asking me about you know the the finished render, well, first of all, I I'm always like, well, it's a really it's a glamorous lifestyle. I mean, you see these pictures of these finished spaces, and you're like, wow, that's so beautiful. Like, you know, it's just it sounds amazing. You know, like, but what it takes to actually get that plaster there you know the prep and the and the processing of your materials it's it is um it's quite an undertaking and it's also you know it's really important that it's done right because your finished plaster is only as strong as your substrate so if your wall system you know is not adequately prepared prior to the to the actual finish taking place you know there's a good chance that your wall might might not last very long <laughs> absolutely and, i'm glad you stressed that uh, i completely agree so can you walk us through some of the the main steps to get to that point that the final finish can really shine and you know that it's on a sturdy base so i mean it depends on what we're working off of so i could use the straw bale for exist um example here since that's what i'm, I'm currently doing um you know, with the straw bale, it's all about that the straw bale's wall system itself being stacked properly. Like the walls should be stacked as as tightly as they can be. Voids packed with loose straw as 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 tightly as they can be. The wall trimmed, you know, as beautifully as can be. The more time you spend shaping and trimming out your straw bale wall before you start putting up clay, the easier your process of clay plaster is going to go. And that all depends on to what level of finish you're actually looking for at the very end. You know, if you want perfectly straight walls or if you want curves and rolls and whatnot. Um, and then hydration. So as your, you know, as your coats go on, your clay coats go on, making sure that you're adequately hydrated um, before proceeding with your following coat. Um, 
you know, with, with my gypsum plasters, um, you know, over top of drywall and even in clay for that, for that matter, we've been doing clay over top of sheetrock as well on the project that I'm currently on. Um, you know, gypsums, I use a lot of, um, bonding agent. So I use like a, like an, a self, like an adhesive, um, that I'll add sand to. So basically it helps to give a, um, a bond to say a previously painted wall or, um, but the problem whenever you're working with any sort of bonding agent or a sanded primer, you know, it doesn't have the same relation with the way that it, it acts with the moisture within the coat that you're applying. So, you know, right now, like I'm, you know, in any given room that I'm currently plastering, the majority of the room will be straw bale. All the exterior walls of that room will be straw bale, but then the interior walls are sheetrock. And I have to even coordinate my plastering accordingly because you know the sheetrock the clay finishes it will take so much longer to tack up um, and to start to dry whereas over top of the um, straw bale substrate the uh, the um how it, it basically absorbs the moisture allows the plaster to just set a lot, to dry a lot faster and allows you to work the wall in different speeds so um, with the clay in the in the property that we're actually doing now, on the, over the sheetrock we've used we've pre-taped, you know, used a mesh tape over top of the sheetrock. Um, everything's been been skimmed in with gypsum, um, and kind of given the the sheetrock somewhat of a a flat finish. Then there's been a, a sanded primer that's been added, um, rolled over top of the sheetrock prior to, um, to the clay plaster application, but we're doing all of our clay coats and just a single coat. So we're, we're putting up probably, um, three sixteenths of an inch of a finished clay surface directly over top of a sanded primer on sheetrock. Um, and I have to say every time I'm doing a room, I just love working over the straw bale because the relation relationship that it has with how it pulls the moisture, it just, I feel like it gives you a lot more um, freedom with how you finish the wall. Whereas with the, with the sheetrock, it seems to just be more of, um, you know, you're still waiting for the right time to like come back and work the material, but it's just, it's very different experience. <laughs> and I really have been enjoying working over top of the straw bale. It's just a, a beautiful substrate. Fantastic. That's an experience I've got to try out for myself. I haven't worked nearly enough with straw bales yet, though I have done quite a bit of uh, clay straw slip. And yep. I can imagine that making those transitions between dissimilar materials is quite a, yeah, quite a challenge and takes quite a bit of finesse to get it so that it doesn't look like underneath their their different materials that's really cool yeah it's definitely it's it's been a challenge for sure but it's been it's been a kind of a fun one to navigate you know like on a on a day that i'll be finishing a room that has both substrates straw bale and sheetrock you know generally i'll um i've been plastering the straw bale first thing in the morning and working those you know as the walls dry doing my um, my compressions and kind of pulling you know pulling a little cream to the surface and getting the wall finished right to where i want it um and then the walk is done and i can kind of detail it and then maybe around two o'clock in the afternoon i'll do the sheetrock walls so by the time i'm done working at five o'clock i can basically take out the wave and start to compress the sheetrock um, but it's not ready to finish. And I've been able to come back the following morning, come in at seven o'clock and then sort of lightly hydrate the wall and then finish the wall. Um, so it's been an interesting rhythm to kind of find like how to navigate a room, but it's been a good, it's been a good challenge, challenge for sure. I can imagine that sounds like a lot of fun. Now, one major aspect that is often overlooked by plaster and finishing books I've found is ceilings. Uh, could you tell us a bit about the process of prepping a ceiling and what types of plaster mixes and techniques should be considered for them? Mm. So ceilings, I've been doing a lot, a lot more so um, gypsum ceiling. And it, and it, I have to say that it's, you know, it, so far everything's been over sheetrock. Right. So all the ceilings in this new construction build I'm doing or when I'm coming into an older home that's already been painted, you know, that 
pretty much what I end up doing is putting on, first I make sure that the ceiling is sound. I always make sure that there's no part of the ceiling that looks like it has any sort of regular water damage um, or that it's stable, you know, making sure that it's stable. If, if it's been painted, making sure that, you know, paint isn't, isn't peeling or buckling off because that's usually an indication that there's something water related happening above it. Um, and any of that, any issues with that, always need to be addressed before you start putting your finished plasters on anything. <laughs> um, so, and then, so for my gypsum, um, I would always do a bonding agent, you know, sanded bonding agent, and then, um, proceeding with, um, you know, with a two coat finish. Um, I have not done any clay ceilings. Um, but I'd have to say, I feel like it's really the same sort of scenario. You're making sure that your, um, that your, your substrate is sound, um, and, you know, follow with, uh, with a sanded primer mix and then doing, um, doing clay coats over top of that. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to actually put some up. I've been doing some gypsum base coat in some areas. So there's been some of the sheetrock, there's some inside curved walls that were sheetrocked, but, um, it's not a perfect curve. So there's a lot of areas to fill out. And um, to kind of give it the proper shape, it has like more harder angles. And I've been using gypsum to basically fill those voids that are a lot deeper over sheetrock. Because I, you know, I've been now I've been trying to find limitations of the different materials and where the gypsum is having like a like a, a chemical bond. It's adhering to the um, to the bonding agent and. And it's holding onto the wall very strong in that manner. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still have yet to practice, to, you know, experiment to see how much clay you could use and build off of sheetrock. Because in theory, the fact that clay is basically it's sticking and, and through hydration, right? But if there's enough weight, you know, I, I feel like there's also like a shear value where the plaster might want to just separate from the surface of the sheetrock. And that's something oh, of course. I'm, yeah, that's a risk. Yeah. I'm still looking, looking at experimenting. That's, that's what I've been. I've been basically like doing some of my preliminary base coating with gypsum in areas where I need to like create shapes over top of sheetrock and then finishing with a clay coat. Um, Cause the clay coat will then has a really nice um, substrate where the, the, that gypsum substrate is actually, allowing there to be a good relationship with the moisture as far as, you know, finishing your, um, your clay coat. Um, so ceilings, you know, you know, it's, it's the same, the same protocol that I would fall follow for, um, finishing, uh, finishing your walls. Nice. Now let's talk for a minute now about additives. Specifically, could you explain a little about what types of ingredients you like to add to different mixes to increase strength and durability? reduce powdering and add different aesthetic effects. So um, what I've been using with our clay renders is I've been using like a starch paste, um, a, a, like a wheat paste basically to help, um, help kind of make it somewhat stronger. Um, you know, I, I found when I was, our finished coats are all, um, we're using bagged, bagged clay. Um, the reason, and that's not all the walls. Some of the some of the walls will actually have the finish clay plaster will be the uh, the site clay subsoil. But the thing with the clay the site clay subsoil is it tends to be darker in color. And after you've been rendering all your interior walls with um, the clay subsoil of a darker color, a lot of the times by the end of the job, everybody wants to see something light, light, <laughs> light and bright. Um, so I've been using bagged, um, potter's clay and, you know, formulating mixes using some sort of starch paste, um, to basically help make it more workable. It has, um, better adhesion, um, and kind of just makes it a bit stronger as well. Um, lime renders, I tend to use, you know, some sort of fiber, um, a lot with my, Exterior, interior, a lot of his, you know, historical restoration work. Interior, you know, I'm actually still adding animal hair 
um, just so that I'm giving the uh, the line render some more tensile strength. Um, and sometimes with gypsum, gypsum is kind of it's you know the the milled bag material. It's like ready to go. So it's like uh, I never really add much to that to get the you know get the effects that I'm looking for. Yeah, that's usually ready to go out of the bag. Ready to go, but I have to say it's it's um it's really fun to get all sciencey on it. <laughs> I agree. And, and start like saying, well, what if I add a little bit of this, and what if I add a little bit of that, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that that has actually been I've been having a lot of fun, sort of, you know, putting on an apron and being like, all right, let's let's bake some paste, and you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> have you experimented at all with different additives to help to slow down the dry time of lime plasters in order to help it to set better? Um, like uh, p- Posilon, is that what you're talking about? Or Yeah, either Posilonic additives or I've heard of people putting oils and even dissolved salt that hold mm-hmm. the moisture for longer. Have you had any experience with those? I have not. No, I have not experimented all right, well, we'll have to keep in touch and see if, if either of us find out some cool information about that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's on my radar, though. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's switch gears one more time here and talk about different troweling techniques and the ways of achieving different finishes and effects uh, through the way that you apply the mixture. Could you explain a little about compression techniques and how things like buffing and polishing can not only change the appearance, but also the texture and the performance of a finish? Mm. So I think it's it's really important to you know have a good handle on your tools, right? So your your hawk and trowel, if that's if that's how you're applying, or if you've already applied the material, then you're coming back to burnish, depending on what material it is you're using and what direction you're going. I think it's for your finish. One of the most important things to consider is how to keep a low stress impact the lowest stress impact on your body because ultimately you're just you're physically working these walls in order to accomplish a finish and um if you're going to be doing it in a large amount it's it's definitely important to do it well so that you're kind of taking care of your body while you're doing it because it it certainly can be uh, can be taxing so you always want to work in front of you know work in front of you you don't want to be working too far out of your your um your center range, I guess. Right. So I'm not, you know, I'm not reaching six feet over to my right to kind of compress plaster. I'd be standing right behind my, uh, my arm and my hand. And I'm also, depending on the type of trowel that you're using, you may hold it slightly different, but generally I'm always trying to concentrate my pressure on the spine of my trowel. And with that, I'm basically, I don't know, I'm trying to figure out the best way to explain it. But so when you're holding your trowel and say you're, you're compressing the material, um, whether it's, it's lime, clay, or gypsum for that matter, once it's at the right point for compression, um, I'm standing behind my trowel and with a repetitive motion, I'm generating a force down the spine of my trowel, but I'm allowing variations of pressure to be released through the edge of the tool that's actually dragging along the surface. So my my compression on the spine of the trowel is consistent, but what I actually allow to come off of the um, the edge of the tool, whether it's a steel blade or or a plastic blade or um stainless steel or carbon steel or or wood float <laughs> sometimes for exterior um you know the sort of the, um, the release can, can fluctuates and it's 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 much easier demonstrated than than discussed how to absolutely f- yeah formulate some some better ways to explain it because it, it is really important you know i think um I wear a, um, I wear wrist protection regularly as more of a proactive thing because, you know, you're, you're really working not only your shoulder, but your wrists and your elbow, you know, and, and it's important to know that you're, you're using all of them in a manner that's, you know, not putting too much stress on your body because it's, it's definitely strenuous work. Yeah, for sure. 
That's that's really good advice, and I I tell that to all my students as well. But it often ends up being one of these like do as I say, not as I do. As I'm reaching across a ladder to reach a little spot by a window, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there are times where you need to just you need to pull out that you know pull out that little bit of power that you've been saving to make out that that long reach that long reach stretch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, man. Um, where do we go from here? What resources do you recommend to my listeners who are keen about learning more about natural plasters and finishes? Do you know of any apprenticeships or courses that teach the skills that we talked about so they can actually kind of see firsthand a lot of the things that we've talked about, which often don't translate very well, just you know, audibly? Another thing, so for me, um, what I would recommend is, you know, getting active on social media for the sake of finding finding people locally you know so like in your area if it's in your state your country like where um there are people that are hosting workshops on on these aspects of um you know applying render and you know i feel like i didn't really there was a point in my my life where I just thought that I was the last plaster alive. <laughs> I didn't realize that there is this whole network community all throughout the world that, you know, I'm just continuous, you know, continuing to meet more and more individuals. And it's just, that's been, um, that's been a really, really wonderful part of this whole process as well. Just seeing that there's, there's more of us out there that are, you know, as enthusiastic about it. Um, and we're not alone. <laughs> Yeah, it's so pretty I, reassuring, isn't it? Yeah. I always worry that I get way too nerdy and way too geeky about this type of stuff, and I get really excited when I can talk to someone like you and like dive down these rabbit holes of these little minute questions. And <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, I, with that being said, though, you know, I, I've definitely I've spent a lot of time just trying to network online, um, seeing what's what's near me and with that you know i've taken i've taken some workshops of my own um you know i took a workshop um at the american college of the building arts and and um uh, is in <laughs> it's down south south of virginia um, so right. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the podcast it's in south south carolina but it was with patrick webb and um, I I did a workshop. He had um, this master plaster from Italy, Franco Saladino, um, come and do a weekend workshop. And that was like this. Um, it was a real just like eye opener for me. Just kind of meeting like a real traditional Italian plaster, and then again finding out about this workshop um, and just being amongst other people, you know, other tradesmen in the community or those looking to learn some new techniques that, and I met guys all around the United that were from all around the United States. And that kind of like just started me like on the hunt a bit more for these, um, workshop opportunities, because with that, um, you know, I've continued to take workshops and just continue to meet great people that are interested and excited about it and also just learning um, new things from um, from so many different people. I'm really trying to take in what everybody has to say, you know, and then just formulating what, what works best for me in the process of it. But it's all, um, yeah, it's all been about networking, just really trying to find where those, um, those resources might be available. Yeah, absolutely. I found that too. Once you do take the time to look for it, there's a fantastic community all around the world of people who really put their passion into this. Agreed. Yeah, completely. I um, I took a workshop with uh, the woman who's designed the building I'm working on now. I took a workshop with Siggy Coco um, a couple years ago now, and that was that was. Um, a big eye opener for me, you know, she had a lot of a, a great variety of people that were attending the workshop. Um, you know, some were in the trades and a lot just wanted to get their hands in mud. And it was really, um, really awesome to just see that environment in itself too. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to just go and attend these workshops if you just want to like try something different, but you can also learn a great deal from them as well. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Siggy Coco is fantastic. And I did a, a podcast interview with her, which I'll link to in the show notes as well. But hey, before I let you go here, what is the best way to find out more about your work and to see some of the gorgeous examples of the finishes you've done? Well, you know, I do a um, 
a regular update on on all my current projects on Instagram. Um, you know, post a lot of photographs of uh, all the cool stuff that we're doing. Uh, my Instagram name is uh, The Art of Plaster. And um, you can check us out online at www.theartofplaster.com. Feel free to drop me an email and contact. Excellent. Well, hey, Gabriel, thank you so much for the time that you shared here. It's been an absolute pleasure for me getting to talk about this stuff with you. I hope we can do a follow-up sometime. I've got tons more questions just after the great uh, answers that you gave to what I had already. Absolutely, Oliver. No, we'll, we'll have to definitely reconnect, my friend. Nice to meet you. Hey, likewise. All right, well, take care, and I'll be in touch. All right, sounds great. So before we wrap up this show for the week, I've got some exciting news about the upcoming months. And I'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of Atitlan Organics, Shad Goodsey. Hey, buddy, what's new? Oh, man, so much is happening. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. I really love your podcast, and I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway, probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know, we've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atitlan. In particular, though, the Intro to Permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners, architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like, honestly, you can't take this course and still see the world the same way afterward. Man. Yeah, it's that's life-changing. Sure. But like I said, what I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're going to be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our Intro to Permaculture courses. Literally, this two-week offering is like possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's, that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? Man, well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well. I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, outdoor kitchens and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with natural materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah, that sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive. And probably my favorite part is that we have this world international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. we got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. you got Fungi Academy. And honestly, loads more alternative, blow-your-mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening. Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition. So this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered. That's a great idea. Because I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks. But this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. And that way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So, hey, to all of you listening out there, we really want passionate and driven people like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the upcoming events and workshop schedule? For sure. 
Well, for start, they can either go to AttilanOrganics.com and click on the Workshops tab, or they can check out AbundantEdge.com and click on the Education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive, regenerative, and truly life-changing projects. So this is Oliver Gaucher and Chad Goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building. Can't wait to see you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer, from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America, simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session. Music